All right, we're back. Uh, we start with the sun and move on out. The futures in the skies above <laughs> heavens unfold. A new star is born. Space and time making love. That's right. We are the world's only dedicated Sammy Hagar podcast. This is the Bogus Otis Show. I am Bohost Brent. That is Bohost Darren, my guitar-slinging mixologist. What are you drinking tonight, my friend? Well, in keeping with with our special guest out in this episode, uh, who's covered all and knows everything about the backyard beer parties of Van Halen's early days, I'm keeping it simple with a Sam Bone lager, my friend. It's a Sam Bone. There's a, a Sam Bone right there. Last one I got. So. Red Rocker Brewing coming at yeah. you real soon for sure. You're right. We're going way back. I, I wasn't sure if you were going to mix, you know, one of those classic cocktails you see from the old restaurant placemats like the Brown Cow or the Singapore Sling or maybe a Long Island iced tea or something because we're going we're going way back in, t- in time, right? This is uh, another storytelling episode of the Bogus Otis Show. We have a very special guest, author historian and a guy who i swear gets tagged with van halen content on twitter more than anyone on this planet (laughs) that is the truth we have the author of two books van halen rising and ted templeman a platinum producer's life in music welcome to the bogus otis show mr greg renoff thank you for having me guys i appreciate it looking forward to talking all things sammy and all related topics we were just discussing yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna hit it uh, right away here, Greg. We're going way back in time because it's 2023, and this is the 50th anniversary of the release of Montrose's wow. debut album. Can you believe half a century? And we know Darren and I were talking um, just uh, off camera before we started recording tonight that you know among the diehard Sammy fans, this album is still highly regarded as one of the greatest debut rock records of all time so we're curious your thoughts on this album and also how much of ted templeman's stamp was on this record and you know really what does that mean in terms of the legacy of his career well i mean i often say that it's the best thing that sammy ever did um meaning just the whole the whole vibe of the songs, the impact. I mean, this, I, you know, I think it's uh, putting the Van Halen stuff aside. I would say it's the most influential record that Sammy appeared on. Uh, I have had so many conversations with so many different, for lack of a better term, sounds jerkish to say like douchey, but it'd be like music industry people. But like, we'll, we'll say like even people who surprise me, people who, um, you know, are, I just spoke to a gentleman who's a producer who does a lot of um, what I would call, americana type of country southern rock type of music and talked about how like how foundational the Montrose record was him for as a kid he was like oh that was like one of the records that i listened to over and over and over again it really shaped my my sensibility of like what rock music should sound like um so you know when i think about the first Montrose record i also think that sammy was was really 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 young when he made that record he was the kid in the band ronnie Montrose had made um he made the Edgar Winter record. He had been on a Van Morrison record and he'd done other stuff before that. So he was, you know, he was the young guy um, in that group. And, uh, you know, Sammy has sort of been the guy who, you know, along with Danny Carmasi, I think would be the other guy who probably had the most most lengthy career and probably the most influential, I guess, is argue about with Ronnie. Um, but I don't think Ronnie, you know, I don't think Ronnie ever really as a... Um, as an artist having a, as a, a commercial artist ever had the impact he had after Montrose, he did, you know, he did um, Gamma and he did a bunch of other projects that never really, I think hit, hit as heavily commercially as those. Um, so, you know, for me, when I think about the record, I think about how young Sammy is. I think about the widespread impact of it on people who are, who are, you know, again, all working now who are in their fifties and sixties, who grew up on the seven on seventies rock and, you know, it's the kind of the Zeppelins, the Who, these records are the ones that you think about when that, but when you talk about mantras, people's eyes light up and they go, oh yeah, that record was massively influential to me. Um, yeah, and I think it really was, um, for Sammy, it really set the tone for 
for his um it set the bar for him. I mean, I think I think his material, I think we could talk about that maybe, you know, some of his material was you know not didn't live up to that level. Um, but he made a lot of good solo records and he's he's done well, obviously, with Van Halen and so many other stuff he did decade after decade. But that's was a very hard, you know, a very uh high um starting point for him. Ted Templeman, you know, I think as I wrote about in the Ted Templeman book that Ted explained to me in great detail was that um, when he heard the riffs that Ronnie had come up with. So the, initially, if I remember correctly, the story was that, that Ronnie, Ted had said to Ronnie, look, if you ever want to do a band project outside, because Van Morrison had fired Ronnie or something like that, like and Ronnie had done Edgar Winter, and, but Ted had always said, Ted had become a producer at Warner Brothers and was an executive, like a, you know, a vice president at Warner Brothers or something, a junior vice president. And he said, look, if you ever want to do a record, come see me, I'd love to try to do a record with you. And that's when Ronnie, I believe, approached Ted with the, the some of the songs and they had found a singer um, and Ted loved it. And what Ted heard in the music and what Ted, I think, was interested in doing with Ronnie was doing, um, Ted called it heavy metal with a sense of humor. And like, I, like, I don't really yeah. think of like Montrose as having a sense of humor, but I think what Ted is trying to say is like a lot of the music at the time was like Sabbath and purple. Yeah, like it was doom, more doom, you know, doom rock. Doomy, right? right? Yeah. More minor, like more minor stuff, and like yeah. more of like like happy metal, like happy metal. Hundred percent. That's what he means. That's what he, that's what he means. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So he he really was into this idea that Ronnie had of doing these short two to three minute songs that would be very very catchy um, with choruses and but with loud guitars. And so that was really what they they came up with was the idea to do with with Montrose. And you know I want to give. Uh, Along with 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 Ted and with Ronnie, I want to give so much credit to Don Landy, the engineer, who was the guy who got those incredible tones. I mean, Ted and Don were obviously a great team, and Ted had great influence on how the record sounded. But Don was the one sticking the microphones and like working with Ronnie to come up with these different sounds, like the Space Station um, number five ending where the tape unspools. And um, Don told me, well, I think when I was working in the TED book, I talked to Don about that. He told me that they all cheered when they realized they had gotten, however they did that effect and got the tape on school and speed up and do that. It sounded like it was going out in the space. They all like stood up, basically stood up and cheered because they had gotten it right. You know, so there was a lot of work put into that record, even though, you know, it isn't as maybe as orchestrated as a Zeppelin record. There's still multiple guitar tracks on it. And then, you know, the, the playing is great. I mean, the performances are great, but, uh, you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Rock Candy, with the incredible drum sound that Don yeah. um, got with Andy Carmasi to really, really get that sort of on a riser. Out. I was reading this. Uh, yeah, yes, I was rereading yeah, all the stuff yesterday. It's on a riser. It's, it's they did a it on a riser. Booming sound, right? Right. So not not in the big room at Sunset. So you know, there's always a lot of back and forth about this with people. You know, or like, oh, it's on Sunset too. So Sunset Two is the room with the Van Halen pose with all the trash in the room. That's the the larger room at Sunset Sound. This was the smaller original room that was basically in almost an old garage at sunset so that's called sunset one that's where the doors recorded that's where janet joplin recorded that was the original first studio room that was at sunset and that's where they did rock candy and uh you know that incredible just thunderous drum sound which and ted had them slow it down just to the right yeah that's the other stuff that i would talk about with ted is that ted was you know ted had a real gift with vocals i i heard sammy say that there's nobody better, there's no producer better in the world at doing vocals with me than Ted Templeman, which I thought was an incredible compliment because he's worked with such an, or, you know, an array of amazing um, producers. But Ted was, you know, Ted was really um, good at crafting crafting songs. I mean, the de- you can hear the demos actually if you go and if you get the everyone gets the deluxe edition, which I think is on Spotify. But there was a deluxe edition of the album released with the demos, and the demos are close. I mean, they're actually some pretty close, but um, Rock Candy is faster on the demo. And there That's are a right. couple of other things that are not as quite as as put together, but um, you can I mean you can hear the songs, but you also hear, you know what what the production um, that Ted did. That said, I think that Ted always tried to emphasize to me that Ronnie was a really really super creative guy. He worked really well with Don Landy on sounds and tones, and he talked about how like one of the the, the benefits that Ted had from working with Don was that Ted could step away, meaning Ted could like basically back up and like you know, go back in the control room and he could leave Don and Ronnie to be like mad scientists with speakers and looking at microphones and kind of figure out what it, it sounded because they, because both of them were such technically minded person about yeah. cars. And and gearheads, gearheads for gear, sure, right? Exactly. Very cool. So, and whereabouts, like in, in your, in your tr- musical travels, 
whereabouts did the Montrose debut album land for you? Did you hear it before Van Halen, after Van Halen? Whereabouts did it land? Oh, a- after Van Halen. I mean, I you know, I think it's always kind of amazing to think back on. For me, you know, I was a big music fan in high school. I I, I um, went to a high school, probably like everybody's high school in the 80s, that was like obsessed with music. Rock music was it. There was people who were into punk music, they were into Grateful Dead, they were into heavy metal. Um those were the, basically the three the three tries basically in in the high school. Um, so like you know again they've been like Floyd, the Zeppelin people, and the people who would have listened to like more metal, Iron Maiden and stuff like that. And then there would have been the people who would have been like again to like the jam band, but mostly the Dead. Um, and I don't remember ever hearing about the Montrose album. Now, I'm not saying I never heard it, but I'd be I would be I would be willing to bet a large sum of money I did not hear it unless I passed by it on rock radio. Nobody talked about it. You know, again, people were listening to like, you know, BOA and obviously all the, the Hagar records were Van Halen records and people, you know, would listen to like the, the heavy metal soundtrack. So, you know, it's not like nobody knew about Sammy Hagar. He was, you know, he was one of the, the guys that people talked about at the lunch table or whatever. But I don't ever remember anyone going Montrose. Nobody. And that was one of those albums, though, that had that slow and steady to burn. So I didn't hear about it. I, I mean, I don't remember when I came across it, but it must have been 90s, probably um maybe i you know maybe even later again it was one of those things that i never met anybody who i knew no who had it you know and again like you know you think your friends in high school they had like sort of the the ones you would expect albums you'd expect by the big the big ones you know the montrose record i think ended up selling a million copies like within like 10 or 12 years i think after sammy joined van halen it finally got over the hump or they certified it but um you know when i heard it Again, maybe it was late 90s, mid 90s when Sammy left Van Halen, something like maybe I read like, oh, Sammy was in this band called Montrose and I looked into it. Um, yeah, yeah, I was just Brent and I were away. talking about this just before you came on. It was away. like, for me, it was like kind of the same thing as you. It was like, the, as soon as the kind of around the time the internet came about, it's like, oh, there's this other album he was on in 1973. Yeah, totally. So we talk about uh, some songs from this album and, there, and there, there's a few that really resonate with with me. And one of them, uh, again, we were talking about this offline, um, Make It Last is a song that is interesting in a couple of ways. It kind of um, intersects with the Roth era of Van Halen a little bit. It was covered by them in the club days, uh, you know, here and there a little bit. Um, but it also is interesting to me in that I sort of look at Make It Last as like the 70s version of right now off uh, Front Lawful Carnal Knowledge. The message is the same about, you know, don't wait for time to pass. Do it, you know, do it now. W- what's your take on um, Sammy as a songwriter, as a lyricist, um, as a guy who uh, uses his past, let's say, and kind of reinvents it sometimes? There's a few examples of this where little snippets of lyrics will find their way into another song, you know, three albums down the line, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think he, I think he has his themes that he likes to, likes to go to. I mean, for sure. Like all, you know, like all writers, I think they have things that they like to return to that feel comfortable to write about. Um, You know, I will say with make it last, it's actually my least favorite song in the record. And it always has been from the very first time I heard the Montrose record. And so I always think it was kind of strange that they did Van Halen did make it last in the clubs, but I think it was probably the easiest song to sing. And maybe that may, may have been why I'm not trying to take a shot of rock, but it's like, not like a, you know, um, it's maybe the most, um, you know, it's not a song that's going to kill your voice. And if you're going to do a mantra song and thinking about the other stuff you're going to do that night, maybe that was the reason why, or maybe the event, you know, maybe Ed and Al loved that, love that song. But I mean, you know, um, you know, a space station number five, rock candy, I mean, I find it impossible to believe that Van Halen never did rock candy in the clubs. I just don't think there's a recording that's ever surfaced. I mean, I just think it's it's unthinkable that they wouldn't have tried to do that. I mean, Alex obviously, I think would have been into that. Eddie would have too. Yeah, it um, definitely seems like the most so go-to to song, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, but um, you know, um, you know, Bad Motor Scooter, and you know, maybe because of the slide thing that I, maybe that was one they wouldn't have done. But um, you know, I think Bad Motor Scooter is is to me you know, some of the better lyrics that did same and Janet record. I mean, you know, I mean, to be honest, I mean, some of the stuff on there, it's like flower makes flowers, make me sneeze and praying hurts my knees. You know, uh, funerals make me cry and I don't want to die. I mean, it's not like, I mean, it's not the greatest lyrics I've ever heard in my life, but it would, you know, for whatever reason, it's interesting. It works in the context of that record. Like, you know, um, I don't know how to explain it. Like in the, just that whole Montrose first album of vibe is just so heavy and so energetic it's sort of like it doesn't make a you know i don't sit back and like 
analyze those lyrics. I just think it sounds great. And he's just, you know, I don't want it. The chorus is just awesome, you know? Um, but, um, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, I think it's evidence that Sammy was a little bit green. And I think, I know that Ted talked about that, that that was, you know, with a lot of guys who are singers, like it's, it's especially the first time in the studio, it's really intimidating. You're very nervous and it's really, really hard to um, have that red light come on and deliver all those other guys were, I think, you know, I, I can't speak for all those guys, but I think, you know, especially Ronnie and I feel like the other two guys had been in other bands. I could be wrong. I could be wrong about that. Denny might, that might've been Denny's first big band. Um, but I think, um, you know, the, the performances on record that Sammy delivered are, are really, really, really awesome. And it, um, you know, it kind of established him. Like I said, it's like, this guy's great. I mean, end, end of the story. So I was reading yesterday, rereading all the parts. Well, I mean, I reread this book. Mm -hmm frequently about Ted Templeton. I think it's fantastic. So thank you for now I can say it on camera or on mic. Thank you for writing this book. No, I, no. Um, you're very welcome. Appreciate you saying that. Thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, the one thing I was reading that I found very interesting is that basically due to timing is what maybe in an alternate universe prevented Sammy Hagar from being on Van Halen one. And here comes the controversy. Here we go. Well, because I was reading yesterday because it was saying, you know, Ted in, in his Ted saying to you, uh, you know, I, he's, he questioned Roth and his abilities to sing. All right. Uh, right. But he had other commitments with the Doobie Brothers coming up. So he had to focus on that. And that's what kind of led him to go to some of more of the rehearsals and just kind of watch, which then kind of opened the door to what Roth could do uh, vocally and his sense of humor and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So there, he, mm -hmm. he therefore decided to keep him. But if he didn't have other commitments, is there a Van Halen one with Sammy Hagar <laughs> on it? <laughs> you know, um, the thing about that whole saga, you, you, you know, Ted, so the brothers found out at some point, right? If you read the 1986 interviews around 52 and 50, they talk about it. Now, somebody told them probably, Ted, always said i never told the other three guys that i was thinking about this that this had crossed my mind he said because i didn't know how they were going to react and they could have been fired me or they just could have like it could have like completely poisoned the band like it could have been like oh you're, you're here you go dave you're effing up again you know and the whole chemistry of the band could have been screwed up so ted really made it clear to me that he never told those guys um you know, I think it's interesting to think about that. I think that it's possible, I guess, Ted could have made a snap decision. But I also remember Ted saying very vocally that the guys could have, to me, very forcefully, that the guys could have come back and been like, F off, we're not doing this. Like, And like, basically, it could have ruined their relationship with Warner Brothers. Yeah. That they could have been like, or, you know, or they could have been like, we'll do whatever you want, which is entirely possible. It's the first album. We'll do whatever you want. Um, or it could have really, really soured those guys on Warner Brothers. Like, you know, you know no you know we're not going to do that um you know the history is the history i think it's clear to me and i think it's clear to ted i mean are the people might differ that 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 ted is the, of the fervent belief that if sammy had put been put in van halen it would have been a huge mistake and that van halen wouldn't have made it that's what ted thinks Ted thinks it just wouldn't have like they kind of try yeah. to push those puzzle pieces together he's like they had a they had a, look what he's, he's trying to say is that those guys had a vibe and they guys had a a chemistry all those guys together from being in clubs for so many years just to kind of plug a guy in with a new band and to expect it to work is difficult i mean again we've we've all seen that singers can be replaced and it can work fine it, that's i don't know if that came through in what I, you know i wrote in the book based on what, what ted was telling me and how he was you know in interviews and we were writing up the book but i think that's one of the things that ted was trying to get at that with a younger band it can really like it's just you know just trying to plug and play members like right out of the box is not going to be usually a recipe for success especially when these guys have been together for so many years so you know i think like you know that's that is a good storyline and obviously it's worth contemplating but um because you know i don't think it, it ever got close right it never got close and now like ted went to a meeting and he's like you know warner brothers like gather the executives around i've got a question to ask you guys what should i do and i never got to that he was just worried i mean he was just yeah. worried that roth wasn't going to be able to, to do it um it's cool to think you know though, and if, he, if he had done it it could have been like you know, because it really in Van Halen one to me is is what the, uh, Ted was set out to do with Montrose, which is like the perfect heavy metal pop album. So it yeah, could have it, probably worked, right? <laughs> Ted, 
Ted's of the opinion that it would not have been as successful, and Ted's of the opinion that it wouldn't have worked. But I mean, could Sammy have sung? Uh, I don't know. Could he have sung like "Feel Your Love Tonight" or something like that and done? Obviously, he could have, you know he could sing those songs and could have done a good job. I mean, I just um, yeah, I can only go with what what Ted said, which has never really got close. It was just more of his like, I don't know if this guy can do it. And then when he got as, as you met guys mentioned here, as you mentioned here, is that when he got into the basement with those guys and molded over, he would see making these records with with the doobies and with little feet and he had more time to kind of sit. He kind of got a different perspective on Roth and thought, I can do this. You know, I can I can basically help Dave you know go through this. And the thing that I would I would emphasize everyone who's listening is that Ted Templeman would be the first person to tell you that he was the lead singer of a band and he didn't think he was a very good singer. Like Ted's like I can hit notes and I have a certain tone to my voice so I can carry a tune, but I have like a voice that doesn't it's like a voice that doesn't stand out. It's it, 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 I should say it's not it's not a lead singer's voice. That's what Ted would tell you. He's like I have a distinctive, like I have an unusual tone to my voice, and those songs had something, but I'm not a lead singer. So Ted was well aware of like what it took to be able to like cover up for your you know your your failings and do okay on a record. So Ted had a lot of experience with the Doobie Brothers, and of course with all these other guys, all these you know working with so many vocalists too. Um, so he felt confident that he could like you know help Dave from his own personal experience and struggling as a vocalist, and then. Um, his own ability to kind of get good performances out of singers. Sammy ends up, uh, you know, charting a bit of a, a a nice path here in the the first handful of years of his solo career. VOA, um, uh, arguably or critically uh, or otherwise, his biggest commercial success to date mm-hmm. as a solo artist in '84. Right. Um, right. What What's your opinion of VOA in terms of uh, st- standing out and standing up against? You know the the mighty 1984 and that whole era of the mid 80s of hard rock and right. heavy metal and you know was this an album right. that um, you know musically or commercially or otherwise um, held its own and h- how do you feel about how it sort of fit in a time where you know the world was watching Jump in Panama? I think you know to me the the whole Sammy VOA thing is very interesting because there's just like you guys should do like a whole episode. I love I come on your show and I already tell you what you should do. <laughs> I'm the guy who comes on your show and tells you what you should do. On, <laughs> on Sammy's on Sammy's politics, right? It's like this like, you know, like the the, the, the VOA he made a video for VOA, right? That's right. He did. Yep. Yeah, he did, right? It's like it's like a Rocky movie. It's ours it's like a Rambo movie basically, right? That's like this whole yeah. political <laughs> thing. Um, you know, it's Sammy's like the voice of America and he's gonna like fight back against, you know, the Russians and everything, Soviets and like so there's that whole interesting thing. The album cover, of course, he's like parachuting in to save America, or I don't know, attack him. He kind of like stormed the Capitol. He's like, democracy doesn't work anymore. I'm going in, boys. You know, and he jumps to. Um, but um, you know, I look. That's an album. It's really funny. I had a friend. I have a friend who um, who was like a Sammy Hagar super fan and i don't know like i don't know how many of those that were walking around like like people who were like that was like one of his number one it was like scorpions and sammy hager was number one and two bands it was a little bit a little bit off for most people right but you know it's fine i go to his house and he'd play me like cruising and boozing and i'm like i don't really like this you know? i'm not really and i wasn't like loving a lot of sammy's early stuff i didn't like hate it but i was just like and i wasn't quite able to get into all of it right um but when i heard voa i mean i loved it i mean i thought i can't try 55 was obviously like the greatest of the greatest of the 80s of 80s songs the video is unbelievable um but like swept away and like all of that stuff like even dick in the dirt like i listen to this album a lot right like i mean you know you know ted i played ted dick in the dirt and he was just like oh god like oh god like he's just like <laughs> Sammy can't help himself and i think that's what i said in the book i think that's what he said like to me he's like but you just gotta let sammy be sammy sometimes yeah. like you yeah, know you let him get away with like, that, that was his take exactly like you've got like he's like that he was into it but um you know i i think it's uh, a really really great 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 80s record i mean it kind of has kind of interesting sound like it's it's not like the classic ted templeman sound like with the drums and everything it's, it's not quite as like straightforward as like some of the van halen records were or some of the other stuff we did with the doobie brothers where there's all different like it's much more reverby and 80s right um but um yeah swept away is a big a big favorite of mine um you know and the whole the whole record i mean i really enjoyed it but i think the whole the whole political thing about it is was actually super super interesting um you guys know in like 19 i guess it was 1980 sammy was playing at uh, 
I don't know if it was a candlestick. It was it was at um a day on the green. Like maybe it was it that Sammy like blew up the Ayatollah's face on like on like in front of like sixty thousand people. I mean, Sammy's like you know he's got some uh, political. I'll just say he's got some political opinions, and they they shine through in some of his material. And I think it's I think it's super interesting that he did that video, which is like a like a Rambo movie, which nobody like I played it on Twitter, and people were like, "What's this?" Like they were like, "What is what is this?" I think <laughs> I think it never got played on MTV, right? It just didn't do anything. You know, uh, I can't try. Fifty five came out and did its thing, and I don't think there was ever a second video that took off. But like, you know, it's it's trip. Um, I'm a big fan, and I know that Ted really enjoyed working with Sammy on the record. Um, I'll tell you guys, it's kind of a funny story. It was like so, Ted wanted to do some late draft of the book, which was a little bit late. But they were, you know, okay, we'll we'll keep working on it. We're, you know, we're probably a little late to keep doing this, but we're keep working on it. And uh, I remember very vividly, I was sitting with him in, out in California at his place. And he was like, we did our, we read over the VOA stuff. And he's like, that's it? We're not going to say more about this? And I was like, sure, we can do whatever you want. He was like, you know, he wanted to, like, he wanted to, like, I, he felt I had not captured how much fun it was to make the album. I mean, I thought I had, but, like, we, that's when he that's when he told the story about the barbecue, which is in the story, like, Sammy was like, let's get some ribs. Get the ribs. And, like, that was a very... <laughs> get the ribs and like barbecue sauce all over everyone's face and slap each other on their back and like um you know ted wanted a few more you know, he, he he really wanted to convey how much he enjoyed working with samuel like, even when things you know got whatever political so to speak with basically political with van halen and got kind of dicey or whatever but how much he loved working with him and loves him as a person but like <laughs> you know it was like then he like we had, and one other story we had in there that was like you know like that um the other story he told which i'm not sure made the, the Made they said that Sammy had nicknames for everybody, so he called like the the engineer Big Buddy, Big and buddy, then yeah. they were working at, at right. They were working at. Uh, I don't think the story made the, the book, so this is bonus content for your 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 pod. All right, uh, <laughs> that Sammy was came into. I think it was Wally Hyder Studios, and the the night guard was like a retired policeman or something. And he was always in a bad mood, like he was just like didn't like the job, whatever. And like Sammy's like, what's wrong with old broke dick? all broke dick and i guess that like stuck like that ted said it was like hysterical like they say he'd be like that's all broke i saw broke dick out there like you know and that became a thing like the catchphrase like you know as you know that that thing like maybe like it spanked out before spank it was like broke dick like the speaker's broke dick like so that became like a running joke i'm not sure that made the book but that was one of the things that ted said like danny was always coming up with nicknames for people and was just so like up you know like it was just great to make records with them so that being said that ted was very disappointed when this when another record didn't come with Sammy. I mean, that's a whole different that's obviously all wrapped up in the Van Halen thing, but that Sammy um had had a huge hit with Ted that you know that was VOA was his biggest solo record to date and that there was it was um Ted had really thought it was like a good we they'd kind of kind of a good thing going. So that kind of leads me to my next question for you because uh in the book right. his it, Ted Ted proposed to Sammy to follow up VOA with something that was very R&B and trying to, you know, like, uh, shine a spotlight on Sammy's kind of soul voice. What's your thoughts on that? Right. that do you think that was, would have been a good decision to follow up VOA with an R&B album? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think, I think Ted was thinking like a producer. I mean, far be it for me to disagree with like what Ted would have thought was, was right for Sammy. I think that I understand where Ted was coming from, which is that like Sammy just did the thing with like Sam, from Sam and Dave and his soul man, like and um when Bill Withers died, um, I don't know if you guys saw Sammy did Ain't No Sunshine, like yeah. Sammy did it acoustically. When Bill Withers died during during uh 2020 during COVID, like Ted's point is that Sammy's like super versed with that stuff and is great, a great, great, great soul singer. Like he can sing like, you know, James Brown, like Ted said, like you wouldn't believe like whatever jam, whatever fool around in the studio, maybe and Ted would hear Sammy do a little bit of James Brown, like I feel good or what oh whatever, you know, whatever the stuff he would do, like Wilson Pickett, like he heard him do that stuff and he's like it's unbelievable how great he can sing this stuff. Um, you know, but I can imagine from Sammy's perspective, he's thinking like, I'm building this momentum. I have VOA. I'm, I'm doing bigger venues. I've been slogging it out for like 10 years. Yeah, like you know, I, going just, from I like, just arrived as a hard rock singer. And now I'm going to go do the. Right, right, yeah, right. And I think, he felt like, I, I think he felt like, right. And I think he felt like, you know, Ted was thinking as like, you know, as a producer that you could do this stuff that would, would um, showcase a different side of your, of your um ability and, you know maybe like he, the stuff we did with ed like van halen where it's like you do eruption and then you're like let's put spanish fly you know like ted, ed could have been like people are gonna think i'm you know not a rocker because i'm playing a you know a nylon string guitar like, and again that's maybe not the perfect analogy but that's you know in terms of like the, the moving from boa to a, a different type of album um maybe wouldn't have worked but um 
you know, it was a neither here nor there. I mean, obviously, as Ted said, he wasn't going to be like, we must do this or I won't produce a record. It was just an idea. But he felt like Sammy felt like, you know, like somehow that um, my remembering with Ted told it to me that he thought Sammy thought that Ted didn't like the hard rock stuff or whatever, which Ted did. He you know, was like, it's just fine. But he was like, you have this other side of you that people would would appreciate hearing. But, um, you know, I think honestly, if I was managing Sammy at the time, I probably would have said, you know, let's let's you know put this to the side this idea for the side of I me mean, maybe down the road maybe you do like two or three more solo route albums and you can kind of do like a you know do like a little left turn ep or something like that it wasn't gonna like blow up your career or something but um you know that's where that's where ted was coming from that he thinks that sammy's such an unbelievable vocalist that he can do things that the average hard rock singer can't dream of doing yeah and at, at, at that time you know 84 85 sammy's voice in my opinion was like it's still great but i mean at that point he was like peak right? yeah yeah, I mean, like you know, like like um, like uh, like Jimmy Barnes. Like think about what Jimmy Barnes did. Like that, like you know, I I uh, I would die with to be with you tonight. That type of like more soulful. I think that's what you know. Ted said Sax and Motown. I I, I have trouble believing they would have done like a traditional like, you know, they wouldn't have been like like no for no like midnight hour covers with like you know like the the the, the Motown Sax production. But I think that that more soulful like side of Sammy. I think that's what he wanted to get come through um and that's that's something of the jimmy barnes record if you guys have heard that i really like that record um i can't remember the name of that that record but died to be with you tonight was the big single and um you know jimmy was the guy who was also asked by ed joined to join van halen um before he asked sammy um so yeah i just find it interesting because you know because sammy did do sitting on the dock of the bay you know a couple years earlier and he said he right. hated doing that song. So I, I was just curious. And I'm sure Ted would have been aware well, of that song, right? Right. You know, and, and that, you know, I don't know. I'd have to play that for Ted. I mean, Ted maybe, maybe probably if he was aware of it, he may not remember it at all. Like, you know, if I played it for him 40 years later, he might be like, oh, I forgot all about this. Um, but, you know, that may have been what it was, was too. But, you know, look, like people did like, you know, Peace of My Heart. Like this was like the type of stuff that these bands, you know, they kind of went for these sort of like, more soulful stuff and it would fit in a hard rock context. But yeah, there was that thing with that video where Sammy had shorter hair and like, there was that whole like identity crisis, but that was that, you know, again, that was like 79, right. The whole new wave thing was coming in. It was like, everyone was like, going like, Oh, what are we going to like, again, what are we going to do? Like is hard rock going to survive and we're going to try these different, different things. But yeah, that could be, I'd love to ask Sammy that question. Like that may be like what like was like made him like unenthusiastic about that idea was that sort of like, I tried that. It didn't really, you know, didn't go anywhere and it didn't do me, do me anything um, good. Interesting. Interesting. Andrew Hagar here. When my dad started making tequila, he had one goal in mind. Make the absolute best tequila in the world. If you go find yourself a bottle of Santa tequila, I'm sure you'll agree. We've done just that. Greg, you've uh, you've alluded to Don Landy uh, a couple of times, and there was obviously a great yeah. dynamic between Ted and Don, and um, mm-hmm. all the stories that we've heard about how uh, Don Landy and Eddie were, you know, sometimes often holed up late at night in the studio doing their own thing, etc. And Don <laughs> right. Don carried on and and did some work with Van Halen in the in the Hagar uh, era, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, where does Don land? Uh, where does Don Landy land for you in the spectrum of that sort of engineer role? And I asked this uh, very specifically two episodes ago, we had uh, Canadian producer Mike Fraser on as a guest who mixed oh, yeah. the balance album. And, you know, awesome. we, we talked a lot about the, you know, the differences between the producer role, the engineer role, the mixer role, and, you know, how this all fits together so mm-hmm. what was what was don's in in your estimation uh what was don's contribution to uh the van halen sound in that um engineer role and otherwise i mean that's yeah that's a a big a big thing to get um rolled up in an answer wow so um you know ted templeman told me from basically the first conversation i ever had with him like the very first conversation i ever had with him that Don's a genius and Van Halen wouldn't have happened without Don. And what he means is like the sound of the records that's sort of like a powerful Van Halen thing that everyone associates with like, whoa, Van Halen, like would not have happened without Don. Um, you know, I think Don's role, and again, I don't think this is particularly news breaking for me, that Don's role changed 
as the albums went on. There certainly was, um, you know, the truth of the matter is, I think Ted maybe remembered it a little bit differently in the book um, about fair warning, but there definitely was some some um, dissatisfaction from Ed. I mean, he said it later in interviews that he, he was dissatisfied. Don um, and Ted and Ed working together, the album itself in terms of what fair warning was, a lot more overdubs, took longer, didn't have a big single. And I, I suspect that that was something that was, that Ted may have been aware of that they didn't have a good single on that record. And that may have been something that was maybe on Ted's mind. It was frustrating Ted that they were spending again. I'm just, Ted never actually came out and directly said this to me, but I suspect that maybe they spent a lot more money on that record. And again, this is money that was getting built to the band, right? So like, it's not like Ted was like, Oh good. Warner brothers is making more money. It's actually money that was like, you know, Ted kind of had this pride about like, I want to make records with these guys, but I want to make them quick because I don't want these guys saddled with like they're not Boston. I'm not going to like make them spend like two million dollars making a record. Took a long time to make it, and then they didn't have a single. Um, hence, Diver Down, all this other stuff. But you know, I think what ended up happening was that from the beginning, Don and Ed Ed really got along on a sort of a sonic musical level in terms of getting sounds and stuff like that. And as as things rolled into building the studio. You know, that's where things they got to be closer and closer as friends and there's sort of this um, shifting of how things work. Now, in terms of the sounds, I mean, I think every single Van Halen record, you know, it's, you know, has Don, as Don's stamp on it. Um, the jump wouldn't have happened without Don. I mean, Don got those got those sounds. Of course, Eddie came up with all the music and we know that. But like the sort of the way that everything kind of laid together in there, um, you know, that was the, 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 the parts were sort of layered on top of each other that was as ted would put it like super um i would he, he would say that that had a big thing to do with the fact that don would spend hour and hour and hour and hour upon hour up there with ed at 51 and alice up at 51 50 kind of redoing things play experimenting where if, you know if they had been sunset sound it would have been like let's cut the song let's move on to the next song he, they really experimented um i will tell you that one thing that's really interesting if you look at oua12 um the song list is there and you look through the rest of the credits and you look and it doesn't say produced by Don Landy. It says recorded by Don Landy. And I, one time I asked Don about that and Don said, I didn't want to be the producer. You know, it was too much responsibility. I didn't want to be the, we were like, that, like, you know, basically that's above my pay grade. You know, again, I'm not saying he wouldn't have chimed in on things or had opinions on things, but he did not want that like not produced by Don Landy. So it says recorded by Don Landy. You know, I know that they're like, and I you know there are other times where it says on like singles and it said on 5150, I think like co-produced by him. But like, you know, he, that was sort of with OUA12 where it was just like there was no Mick Jones. It was just Don and the guys up there. You know, he wanted to record the music and work with those guys. And I certainly he he certainly had musical um, input on things. I mean, I think it's the thing is that Don is a little bit more musical than people people know. I mean, he's guy had, you know, had some has some musical skill and was helping those guys with, you know, arranging songs and whatever he was doing. I'm not saying he was like masterminding things, but he was, you know, he's not just the guy who was like just there and like twiddling the knobs, just standing there locked in, like not doing anything, pushing buttons. You know, he, he was, he was involved in that process of doing things and thinking about how to record things with those guys. Um, but, you know, he's, the, he's the guy who stretches across the first, what, six, seven, eight, you know, uh, eight Van Halen records, you know? And so Don, but remember, yeah, six, the fifty one fifty, you two. So there's like that's you know he's he's you know arguably the the along with the guys in the band, Eddie and Alex and Mike are the guys you know he were the, he was the the constant across the board. Um, so yeah, to me, Don is sort of like an un, unsung hero of that whole thing because he hung in there with you know with you can imagine like a pretty crazy situation up there at fifty one fifty. Fifty was like you know I think Ted's book kind of like freak the door open so you have a crack and kind of can see what it was like it was you know it was uh a little you know a little off kilter at times and like don was able to, to get through it and get the you know ted, ted hung in there in his own way too and they got through it and got it done but um you know to have that massive success especially with jump which which ted you know ted was um around when they were cutting jump as we talk about in the book and helped mix jump or whatever you know but he was very very um clear to me that jump you know, Ed and Al, right, of course, but like without Don sticking with it with those guys and, and being there around the clock up at 5150, he said it would never have sounded the way it sounded. It never would have been as amazing of a track without 
done. There's a whole host of a whole host of things like that. And um, you know, he, as you guys probably know, he left the industry in like 1989 or 90. He he did the first he did the first Private Life album with Eddie, co-produced it, and then he was just, you know, he sort of rode off into the sunset. He had kind of done his, you know. It's like a, you know, it's like you like you're in the union. You 25 years, and you're like, I'm taking, I'm retired. I'm going fishing for the next 30 years. You know, that's, <laughs> Greg, that's, Greg, I mean, really, I mean, you're helping me cue up my next question every time. Thank you, because that's my, you know, Van Halen. The Van Halen camp is notorious for being quiet and tight lipped. How hard was it uh, to track really? down and get Don to talk? Was it hard for you to kind of extract what you needed from Don, or was it hard to find him? Um, it was a little hard to find him. I would say yes, it was hard to find him. Um, but, you know, I, I've always been, you know, very respectful of, of you know, for, I try to be respectful of everyone I interview, but especially Don, I really tried to just talk about music. I think probably he's, you know, there's some, there's some, um, you know, he doesn't want to get into the politics of Van Halen. You know was what I'm hard, saying? Was like, it hard to get him to talk like, about stuff though? Is he kind of an open guy? Or no, not like? about like, not, I mean. Yeah, he's perfectly talking about it. I mean, like, you know, you talk about making the records and stuff like that. But, like, I think he is, um, I would say that he is, my read on it, he's not super enthusiastic about the sort of, like, Dave versus Sammy. Like, all the sort of, like, again, like, the sort of, like, stuff that sort of animates a lot of, like, content on the internet. Like, he's like, I, I don't, you know, I just, I'm, I'm happy to talk about, like, drums and, like, making the record. What he remembers about the songs and, and about moments, special moments. Like, remembering the eruption thing or remembering... You know, like he talked about, um, you know, how the how he recorded rock candy and that type of stuff. I think he's good with that. But yeah, he's like, you know, he's an extremely smart guy. And um, how old would he be? Had an incredible career. Oh, uh, so I would say he's probably in, uh, somewhere between seventy five and eighty. I would say oh, wow, okay. my ballpark figure. So, um, yeah, he did a lot of stuff before he did. He met Van Halen. I mean, that was the thing before he met Ed and Alan. Got record van halen he did a lot of stuff in the 60s he was recording he was working as an engineer in hollywood in in the 1968 so you know he eventually got went to work for warner brothers in 1970 or 71 he went to work for warner brothers but he worked at some, a couple of other studios in in hollywood and so he was you know he had a, had a really great career and i just enormous as you guys can tell enormous respect for him but yeah i mean that's the thing he's like <laughs> he doesn't want to go like you know he doesn't, he just, yeah, you, you can just imagine when you've lived it, like when you've lived in that, like, Ed, Al, Dave, <laughs> Sammy, like, world of, like, whatever you want to say about that world, but that, with those personalities, I suspect he's just like, yeah, you know, I just, I don't, I, I no comment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I no comment. You, you may have actually uh, partly answered my next question, which builds a little off of, of what Darren is just saying. You know, we often lament mm -hmm. on the show how, uh, you know, you see this band and that band and the other band, they're all releasing box sets and, you know, super rare stuff and this and that. Mm -hmm. And we're finally maybe starting to see some of that with the Record Store Day release of the, the four red vinyl right. of right here, right now. Yeah. Um, but we often have these conversations where we're like, why? Why is no one willing to talk? Why is no one willing to release anything? Why is why is the machine not churning anymore? Um, and I'm sure that you probably share some of this frustration with us, but just curious, yeah. you know, kind of a, a little inside baseball here, you know, from, from your right. perspective and, and your research, what is it that has kept this band uh back from being you know so so much bigger than they could have been even though we no one denies you know the size of, of what they became but there were right. missed opportunities right. you know almost at every step along the way and right. it grates right. on all of us right. as fans why why right <laughs> and okay, how are you gonna fix this for us greg how are you gonna fix it for us greg yeah that's right <laughs> So let me start out by saying every band, every artist to some extent is a brand. There's, and we can all I'll go, you know, I'm 50, 53 and I'll go. So I'll go with bands that, that speak to my age group category. Motley Crue is a brand. Led Zeppelin is a brand. Pink Floyd is a brand. There are all these brands. ACDC is a brand. And I would suggest that the Van Halen brand has not been as exploited 
as well as it could be. Now that could be a negative. Like, you know, some people would be like, yeah, I don't want like my Van Halen logo on like every single thing I go into Walmart. Like I see with ACDC, you know, I love ACDC, no offense to the young brothers and the, you know, what they built, you know, Malcolm got rest of soul and all that stuff. Or, you know, no, no offense to those guys, but like, there is this sort of like saturation of ACDC stuff, like everywhere you go, like there's all ACDC. That's just an example. You go to Walmart, like that one's the same thing, right? Um, let's start with Van Halen. So that gets to the, the catalog. I think you have a few things going on. Number one, you've got multiple singers to think about. You've got Sammy and you've got you've got Dave, right? And so we've had a situation where presumably, I don't know for sure that the brothers have had the control, the basically the, the majority of the control over what happens with releases that say Van Halen. That's my guess. I don't know that. But then there's obviously publishing money that would flow to the other guys and who owns the song rights and all these other things. So there's all these different legal things. And so you know, um, I dare say that Brian Johnson probably, for whatever reason, can't put the brakes on releases that are coming out from ACDC. Now, I don't know that, or he maybe maybe he never would. Ken Roth, maybe. I mean, Ken Roth again. I or can can Alex? Uh, almost certainly, can Alex? Can Mike? I don't know. So, is it a matter of all guys guys being on the same page? That's one possibility with the Roth era stuff. But the Hagar era stuff, we obviously can see that somehow there was some sort of agreement that was hammered out. Where it was like Sammy, Mike, and I presumably Alex. And again, I, I don't know this for sure. You know, whoever had a vote, maybe maybe it's Wolf, maybe it's not, or maybe maybe Alex has two votes now. I don't know how that works, but that they all came to an agreement to put out the, the Hagar materials, which are going to come out, it sounds like, almost sort of like all the, the Hagar era re-releases. Um, you know, and so in terms of the catalog, there's also the issue that I've heard people around Van Halen or in, you know, we've heard this, this, the idea that like the stuff that was really good was put out on the records. Right. And so that, that Ed, for example, may not be enthusiastic about kind of like calling through all the stuff, like and finding like the third level takes of stuff, like a, like a, a guitar solo that was like him, the third placed one to the one that made it on the record and basically using that going, Oh, we're gonna do light up the sky, but we're gonna do this alternate guitar solo, which to us as fans would be like, Oh my God, it's incredible. Of course, it's an Eddie Van Halen solo. None of us are going to be like, that was all right. We're going to be like, that was a killer. It was different. It's killer. But, you know, maybe to the people who it matters to in the Van Halen immediate orbit, if you know what I mean, like might be like, that's not right to Ed, like to be able to sort of do that stuff. Um, you know, look, the bottom line is the era of the box set is long gone. It, right. There was a time where it would have made sense to be like to do that and to make a sh shitload of money selling box sets. Doesn't mean you can't make money on it now. Or can't do that, and you know, I, I never say never. But there, you guys have seen the Sunset Sound roundtables. I'm sure with Brian Kihu and some other folks talking about that there is releasable material. And again, I'm not talking like you know 20 awesome Van Halen songs that were like never released. But it's like basically what Brian had done, which which I kind of alluded to, which is basically going, okay, there's an alternate, there's an alternate version here, a vocal here from Ross. Let's let's do a, a different version of. Um, of you're no good with a different vocal or here's a here's a you know an extra um an extra take of i don't know cathedral or something right there's a different there's like ed recorded maybe three or four cathedrals and here's the second cathedral that, or the third cathedral he did it's a little different you know and there'd be there would be stuff to put out um that could would be great but again is it is it a matter of that alex maybe or you know things like that shouldn't be put out because it's not doesn't live up to the quality he wants or is it a matter of that Roth doesn't want it out? I, I don't know. I can 100% assure you that if they approached Rhino right now and said, we want to put out a Van Halen expanded edition of every Roth record, they would have like, let's go. Let's put it out. Like, you know, but again, like, you know, uh, Van Halen one with down, you know, high res download with five extra tracks. So maybe they would be like, well, let's work. When can we, you know, or a double record, more like vinyl. When, when can we do that? Um, you know, in terms of the quiet, like you guys were talking about the quiet, I, you know, I always heard kind of Alex lion eyes with good reason, Led Zeppelin, right? He's always talked about how much he loves Led Zeppelin. And Led Zeppelin, if I remember him mentioning this correctly, Led Zeppelin, you know, it wasn't like Jimmy Page sat down like every week and like gave updates about what Zeppelin was doing. Basically, where they you didn't, there was this mystery around Zeppelin and you didn't know what they were doing until like something was coming out and suddenly it was like Zeppelin's back. And so, you know, that might be part of it, part of it too. Uh, look, there's a reason why the brothers hired Roth. He was comfortable being the face of the band. 
he was comfortable being out there. The brothers did it okay. They like stepped up when Sammy joined the band, like Alex and Eddie did more talking on camera, but you could tell it was never their thing. They, you know, they certainly did fine at it, but it was not their thing. They gave Roth the platform. And so now to have like, you know, to, to imagine that, you know, we're going to hear like regular updates from Alex, it's, you know, or just any, like anything, it's just never been, I mean, going back to the nineties, you guys remember it was like the Van Halen news desk and, you know, uh, yeah. Van Halen, it's Van Halen, Van It was like, you know, it was just like a wall. <laughs> it's like, yeah. stare at the logo as yeah. long as you want. You know, <laughs> nothing's going to happen, but if you keep staring at it, there's not going to be any update. Um, You know, in a, or that's like no news is good news or something like that. And then somebody asked Ed about like the internet and he was like, turn it off. <laughs> like, turn it off. Like, turn off the internet. Like, you know, <laughs> like, you know uh, I don't know if that's the greatest dance in the world, but that's, you know, like, again, I think, I'm hoping that the time will come. There is, you know, I think based on what I've heard Brian talk about in Sunset Sound, there's the round table there, which is was great. You know, there's, there is material that is certainly worthy. And Brian has worked with a lot of great, um, great acts, great catalogs. He's done little work on Little Feet. He's done work on Black Sabbath, Alice Cooper. I mean, his, his discography is incredible. So it's not like this guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Brian's a friend of mine. He knows who he's talking about. If he says it's good, believe me, it's good and it's good enough to be out. Maybe not in the opinion of people in the band, but he's, you know, nothing's going to come out. And people are going to be like, well, that was really lame. Like no one's, I, I'm a hundred percent confident that no one's going to say that. They're going to be like, holy shit. This is incredible. Right. I mean, look, look how well the, the Zeppelin re reissues yeah. were with the extra track. I think that's what we want. Right. No one's looking at the second disc of the Zeppelin three record and going, well, the third song really wasn't very good. I don't know what they put it on there. It's like, it's still Zeppelin. It's killer. And anyone with a brain knows it's not as good as like, celebration day that was on zeppelin three it's just like you know it's alternates and stuff like that 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 gives you a, a wider picture of what the type of stuff that was done on the record so you know i'm hopeful i think the fact that they did that alex and sammy who may or may not get along i don't know i just heard Sivo interview it didn't sound like sammy was singing alex's praises as a part of Sivo. i heard that's that's what i heard <laughs> I, i'm just i'm just quoting these are in quotes no, no. i'm not making a narrative up these are in quotes it does sound to me like sammy was enthusiastic about um, his relationship with Alex, they still managed to put names on contracts and get this done and put it out, which is great. I, I have not heard, I don't have a record player um, and I have not heard the red, the red vinyl, but I've, everyone is telling me it sounds amazing. It sounds so much better than the CDs. Have you guys heard it? Uh, I've heard a couple little bits and pieces and you're right. The, the, the same comments are coming out that it's just a, it's a fuller, deeper, bigger, bigger sound. Right. Yeah. Which is what we, which, which is what you want out of like, you're going to spend that much money and it's a re it's a remaster. That's great. I mean, that's, and that's, I think, you know, I'm hoping, I don't know. I'm, I'm hopeful that now that we start to get, we start to get into um, the, the fuck record and the balance and some of these other things that they're, they're, you know, they're always, especially with balance in the sense there was a number of, of finished, excuse me, number of two or three, maybe like crossing over and a couple of things, other things that came out, I think, but other things that may or may not have been hundred percent finished that maybe like a fragment of something, you know, might come out. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's just like a, a, not a full, you know, I'm hoping there's a generous look at the catalog at the, basically at the vault there and going, you know what? It's gone. Here's a three, here's a two minute, 30 second thing. That's maybe an unfinished idea. Maybe we're going to put it on so people like can look, appreciate it for what it is. Like, you know, like basically like, you know, um, demo of this and people can appreciate the, the brilliance of Eddie. And I realized that that that's what we have. And, you know, there might be a couple of other tidbits on there. Um, to go along with, you know, when balance is reissued, I don't know, but I'm hoping there's going to be more than just like, I think crossing over was commercially released, right? So there must be, there, I sound like there was more stuff than that, that never, never saw the light of day. Yeah. So first of all, again, I go back to both your books. They're so well researched and thought out and, uh, you know, the amount of effort that goes into a book as detailed as this stuff what's is there what's what's the next i'm laughing because it's like, it's like yeah it's uh it was it takes a lot of time I mean, well the stuff you found out like, especially for van halen rising like some of those details yeah, must yeah. have taken forever to unearth some of those things and track long, this person down and, and this you know I we love can the figure out a way to make it faster as good and come out as fast that would be good yeah um is there a mike post uh version of uh coming soon from you Greg? <laughs> you know um you know, I'd love to talk to Mike Post. I mean, I you know, there there are so many other um, you know figures that I think have interesting interesting lives. I think um, you know, with the um, 
with the Ted book, it seemed like a natural, a natural fit. And Ted was great to work with, um, you know, but I, I, you know, I enjoyed, I enjoyed doing the, 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 uh, to be the, basically the, the co-writer or whatever you want to say, the, the, the supporting writer for the, for the Ted book with Ted, with Ted, you know, as the, with Ted Templeman. Um, I enjoyed that, you know, but I also enjoyed the, the, um, the more, you know, broad-based research base with a lot more voices in it of Van Halen rising. So yeah, I, I should be able to announce another book pretty soon, actually. It's been a, been an interesting saga for me over the last few years, but um, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing something, uh, getting something out there to you guys. And yeah, I appreciate yeah. it. It's, it's, it's very, very rewarding to hear. I mean, in all seriousness, I really am grateful to you guys for talking about my books. It's, you know, it's uh, it never, especially with Van Halen rising. I am, you know, um, <laughs> it was, I didn't have an expectation that it was going to come out. And people would be still appreciating it years later. I was like, I got to finish this book for myself. And if anyone reads it, great, but I'm, you know, it became kind of like my white whale, my obsession. So, so is that is like for your next book? I guess you can't say exactly what you're doing, obviously. But is there? Do you have to uh, like you have to pitch the idea to uh, a, a publisher first, or do you get like the manuscript or the basis or a big chunk going first and then take it to a to a publisher? Welcome to it's like you know like that old story about the about a uh, you know Jan Van Halen with the Van Halen brothers. They got the money in the hat, and then he's like took like three quarters of it out. Welcome to the music business. Welcome boy. to the business. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so there, even there's a number of different ways you can, uh, you know, the real quick version is that yes, I could put together a book idea and send it to a, a publisher, and a publisher could be like, "Great, write the book," or um, someone could approach me with a fairly finished manuscript and have a book deal and be like, "Can you like finish this off?" Like basically, you know, they're, they're certainly possible. Like I don't know, like John Smith, famous rock star, could say, "I've got a publisher who wants to do this," and there's you know, uh, I need to see the co-writer, and it's already the deal's already set in place. So there's different there's different ways to do that, but. Um, yeah, it's uh, don't let your don't let your babies grow up to be writers. It's a lot of good. Learn to code. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you obviously seem like a huge music fan. And what, what are some of your other favorite bands? Uh-huh. You know, so you know, growing up, uh, I got there's so many. I mean, the first band I actually really ever really got started on was probably the Doors. Actually, you know, I kind of like my rock sensibility kind of came of age. I had an uncle who kind of told me about like Cream and. Black Skin, I'm like Cream and Almond Brothers and the Doors and the Rolling Stones. And that was right around the time soon after that. That's when the Apocalypse Now Doors thing happened. You know, that was kind of that like 79, 80 when the Doors suddenly had this bizarre revival. I mean, it's bizarre, but because it, it was like a little bit out of all the bands to kind of become like on the cover of Rolling Stone again. No, I don't think people were going the Doors are the one that's going to, um, it was going to happen. But, um, you know, that was kind of my first, first love of a, of a rock band. But, um, you know, I, I, I was a big Rush fan of the eighties. I actually went through a period of, um, you know, uh, being pretty obsessed, obsessed with like Van, like Van Halen Rush are probably my two favorite groups. Um, okay, cool. I, I don't want to get a lot of hate mail from your, your Rush, from your Rush folks, but I sort of like my, my interest as they, as they went through the eighties through like, uh, you know, uh, from um, power windows, hold your fire. And like sort of my interest in Rush sort of de- declined during that period of time. But um yeah, I mean, I you know I can go through like Zeppelin, you know, kind of the the uh, the usuals, and I was into like Rat and all those other bands like that. That was like a big a big uh, thing for me. One of my fun moments I had as a as a kid, I saw um, I saw I, first time I really ever saw an opening act like dominate a headliner. I saw Bon Jovi open for Rat in 1985 at the Meadowlands, and that was Bon Jovi's return home to New Jersey, and I was like. That was a real eye opener for me. You know, again, those fans became huge, but it's just more of like that was the first time I ever sat in a crowd and was like, "Oh, it's possible for an opening act to like, like make the headliner look bad." And they actually did. They made like Bon Jovi was like, just the crowd was into it, and John Bon Jovi was incredible on rap. Was sort of like whatever. They were, you know, I'm a big rap fan, whatever. But it was just, it was the energy was not. They kind of sucked the air out of the room, right? And it was like so. Yeah, I mean, you know, I went to tons of, I saw Robert Plant in the 80s and, you know, like Stevie Ray Vaughan four times. He was one of my all-time favorites. Um, I saw him like just weeks before he was killed in a plane cra- in a helicopter crash. And oh, um, so, yeah, I would feel very fortunate. I saw Stevie Ray four times. That was kind of a, yeah, that was an amazing, was, they were all amazing experiences. Well, well I've got my fingers crossed here, hoping at some point you're about to say ZZ Top because I would love a ZZ Top greg renoff level zz top book uh, they've done you know they've done they did a you know they did a book um well billy did a book have you guys seen this book it's, it came out it was basically put out a few years ago yeah um yeah billy gibson gearhead this is re- the reissue the deluxe reissue yep. this book yeah but, I, um, but i'm you know, talking like a you know, van halen rising zz top version 
a la Greg Renoff. Some, get me somebody. Get me Billy. Yeah, they haven't really done one, right? Now. I think it's a band that would be. <laughs> yeah, they, a, did the, they, they could. They, they could did the banger. They the, did the banger documentary, right? Yes, banger films, the documentary, right? Which is very yeah. good. Yeah, I mean, look, it was good, but it glossed thing. over a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like that's the problem. Like, I'm not critical criticizing anything on this documentary, but it's it's like super super hard not to like when you're like dealing with film, right? Like you're like yeah, because with hours. print you can like kind of like you can like get into like you know, all this other stuff. So, um, but yeah, that's the end of that. It was the, that was a really enjoyable documentary. The end of that was like unbelievable when they jammed in the room. That was like un- yeah, that was unbelievable. Not uh, knowing it would be Dusty's yeah. last real recording. But I mean, like oh, when I watched that, I was yeah. like hoping for like one nugget of something that I didn't know. And there wasn't anything. Sure. Really. You know, but I mean, that's why I like Van Halen Rising, man. Cause it's like page after page of like, wow, didn't know this. Holy shit. Didn't know that. Well, that's, you know, that kind of levels where I think some of these bands need some treatment like the Van Halen rising. Can we call this? Let's, let's, why don't you guys have the head of the Smithsonian on and see if you'll like make me a fellow for like five years and I'll just sit in the Smithsonian just type for the next five years. <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> top rising. Well, you say you're a, a like, rush I'll fan. I'll a large leather chair with books behind me in the Smithsonian. I have like all luxury around me. Like, exactly. I'll just see this book. It'd be great. Well, you, uh, you say you're yeah, a, rush, a fan. rush fan. Yeah. Do you know, have you heard of a, this is a shot in the dark. Uh, yeah, you've heard of a band called Max Webster. Uh, I have. It wasn't um, Billy Sheehan and Max Webster? It was he briefly? He was. Yes, he was. Yeah, but I was trying to. Uh, I'm friends with Mr. Kim Mitchell, and I was like telling him, like, "Go for soda." Yes, and I'm like, "You need to do a book, and you need to contact this Greg Renoff guy to do your book." So might as well go for soda. Better than soda. Well, well, I've been telling him all about <laughs> your book, so we'll see. Maybe you get a phone call from him. Well, I listen. Yeah, I um I think it's interesting because Kim, you know, the thing I, I when I did this um I did this piece for Guitar World in 2016, the anniversary of Eat 'Em and Smile, and I got to talk to Billy and Steve and Greg. It was amazing um, about the album and Ted, and they t- they talked about the fact that um, Kids in Action, which was um, Tim's song from from one of the the EP in the 80s, he did 85 or so, he did. Yeah. Um, was the final like that song was actually cut i know that from jeff henderson the engineer they actually recorded that song sitting in the vault somewhere in hollywood in a vault warner brothers just sitting there collecting dust but they that was from what steve and billy remembered it was down to tobacco road yeah or kids in action and they decided to go with tobacco road instead of kids in action but that it's finished it's done um and, and if Kim you listen says, to that song god damn like, tobacco road <laughs> oh yeah i mean Honestly, like I, I honestly feel his pain. Like that's like that. Yes, well, that's he, he told me he got the phone call. I guess, I guess Billy. Shed, yeah. Oh yeah. No, no. They called they him. Did to they, ask they, him they the, record, the lyrics, right? They recorded it. They recorded yeah. it. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's just they didn't. They, you know. And again, why was it? Why has there not been an Eat Him and Smile deluxe reissue? I mean, again, let's just turn. Let's just turn the ball the other way today. Like, like I don't know. Like Rhino puts out all sorts of stuff. I I have no idea why Dave wouldn't be like. Of course, we need to put out an Eat Him and Smile deluxe. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's like, you know, not all like the be all end all like of Rhino's re-releases, but it would, I think it would be very, very popular. And like, you know, it would be, I mean, they're, they're, if you look at the stuff that Rhino puts out, Rhino is willing to dive deep. You know, again, they put out like Captain Beefheart. I love Captain Beefheart. Captain Beefheart does not have the the artist recognition that David Lee Roth does. So I don't, again, I look at that and I think, why isn't Dave calling up Rhino going, let's put this out and put out, put it out with kids in action. And maybe there's a couple of other like, things um billy and steve told me about this there's a tape that exists supposedly of those guys doing they went to like a make your own record like there used to be places i guess you could go like walk in and like at the, the pier in san francisco was like 9.99 make your own recording and they made a recording they went into a booth with microphones and they did like california girls as a gag they were drinking and they did this thing and they said it's like actually like really really funny like you know like kind of like a in like a, a happy trail kind of like funny type of thing like a like a humorous vibe it was like you know like you could put out a expanded edition of eat him and smile and put kim's song on it like can get paid and like you know everyone would be happy so i it's just like it's incredible right i just don't i don't i don't understand like why that doesn't happen i maybe dave doesn't want to do it i don't know um maybe he thinks that's all like old business and he's not interested in it anymore but there's like all sorts of stuff like that but yeah um kim kim uh Yes, I would like to see that song come out because I'm dying to, to hear it. I've seen the track sheet of it. I mean, I've seen like the 
the power station track sheet with like track one, track two, track two bass, track three drum toms, snare. I've seen the the sheet. They did it. I mean, they recorded it. It definitely was recorded. And apparently Billy Sheehan has it too, right? So I was trying to say to Kim, like, you guys should reconnect. That's just, what he said. Just drive over yeah, there and just like, cut the vocals, Kim, on top of the Steve Vai and Billy Sheehan version. Billy's at home <laughs> with his lovely wife. Who's at the door? Hey, Billy, they're going off. Just stop by. That's here, right. Here, here, here. Nice. Action. Well, I let myself in? But I did. there was one question I did want to ask you that we I never I didn't get to, which is, if you could yeah. run it, if you had ten minutes to run inside fifty one fifty and grab something, whether or not it really exists oh. or not, that was in that's that you think is in there. <laughs> what would it be? That's a great question. It's like what's what that, what that game show called like shopping? You know that yeah. game show where like the, the yes. they run around yeah. with the cart. Yeah, there's a timer. <laughs> they open the door. You have like a minute to grab it and get out. Right, right. So that's a great question. Actually, um, I would grab. I would look for the multi-track of the Oakland 81 show that Don recorded that was used as the soundtrack for the, the videos. He recorded the entire show on 24-track multi-track. So that's probably if I had like, you know, if that would be the one thing I would, if I got lucky and I ran right to the spot and they were there and I had more time, um, I probably would try to find the masters of 1984 so we could hear cool. Midnight Hour and we could hear whatever other like outtakey stuff that they did in 1984. Good choice. Cool. Good choice. Cool. I'll tell you what, that's what we do here on the show. We riff, we make solutions, and we connect people. And we've been chatting with author and historian circle. Greg Renoff. You can't see, but I'm holding them up for our listeners. We got Van Halen Rising. We got Ted Templeman, a Platinum's, Platinum Producers, excuse me, Life in Music. Greg, it has been an absolute pleasure to spend the last hour with you uh, some great storytelling, some great fun, and we hope that we can have you back again. Yep, uh, I would love to come back. Yeah, I didn't. Sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you. I was just saying that things went have come full circle. We talked about how this conversation was as critical as like a, as a, like a meeting at the UN to try to solve world, world peace, and it turns out it absolutely was. It just <laughs> lived up to its billing. I hope everyone agrees. We have had an incredibly interesting, entertaining conversation that it solved some of the world's problems. It, it was a VOA moment for sure. And I'll tell you, uh, we're going to actually come full circle and we're going to end just where we started because I'm going to say, oh, what a time we had living underground. I moved to station number five. We'll see you next time around. And this is the Bohos out. The Bohos Bonus Show is produced by Right Now Entertainment. Hosted by... Darren Bristow and Brent Kinnair. With audio and production assistance by Andrew Wright and Record Ready in association with Right Now Entertainment. What is understood? <laughs>